Hello and welcome to Unparliamentary Language, a podcast that has outlasted three Conservative Prime Ministers. Can we make it four before this episode is published? Stay tuned to find out. And how are you, Rob? Yeah, I'm, I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, not bad. Um, uh, kind of impressed that despite, as, as we alluded to in the joke, my editing taking a bit longer than I would have liked on the last time-critical episode, that it really didn't matter because... Everything has been so topsy-turvy. Um, I, I mean, we're going to get into it into a second, but uh, I subscribed to Private Eye, and Private Eye sent me uh, my regular magazine uh, a day early on the 20th of October, and it had a joke on it that was so hot off the presses, it was excellent, and it was already a day out of date, because it was about <laughs> um, Jeremy Hunt, uh, kind of like Jeremy Hunt as the puppet master for our Prime Minister Liz Trust, which I'm sure we'll cover, but it was very funny because it was already out of date despite being a very good joke and a very timely, um, because everything has just been moving so fast. Um, yeah, I, I think I think it's fair to say there's, there's too much news for us to do the headlines, and we're just going to kind of, it will be, I guess this is the headlines, but it's also the main story, so we're just going to go straight into everything that's happened with Liz Trust's government since we last spoke. So uh, where were we last time, Rob? I think we had obviously discussed Liz Truss being in power. We discussed uh, the Queen passing away and all of that stuff. Uh, but it's been a few weeks. Where, where were we? I think we were just, we were at Tory party conference, weren't we? And I can't remember if it was just before, if we were on the eve of Tory, Tory party conference to see how Liz I think Truss it was went. the first day of it. And we were like, oh, next time our episode is going to be yeah. all about the conferences and then <laughs> the news has got ahead of us so I mean I don't think anyone I mean we might touch on the Tory party conference as part of this I might mention the Labour one but I don't think we have our time for our usual yearly review of them because everything has changed so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and to be honest like it, it's weird because this Tory party conference now means nothing um, as, as it was but I, I think it's fair to say that at the Tory party conference the vibes were off from the beginning okay, to use the technical term um, there was a feeling that uh, Liz Truss has just done this major economic uh, change of policy with Kwasi Kwarteng as her Chancellor of the Exchequer. And on the eve of that conference, as we mentioned, she'd U-turned on the 45p tax rate. Um, that was the big U-turn at the time. But still, the vibe of this conference was, we're going to plough ahead with our economic um, plan. Don't listen to the markets. We're going for growth. Um, this will be our long-term plan going forward. Uh, and at the back, you had Conservative MPs discussing, oh my goodness, I've seen what the polls are like after this. Am I going to have a job next time? Is Liz Trust the right person to lead our party into the next general election? Things have got to turn around. So she's already on the ropes when you get to, when you've got after that Tory party conference. What's astonishing to me is that you've had leaders on the ropes before, like Theresa May had a pretty disastrous conference speak a couple of years back. I don't remember. I don't know if you remember, but that's the one where she had a P45 given to her by a person out of the audience. The letters yeah, fell off the back. Yeah, that's also the one where she famously danced onto the stage, which has become like an enduring meme every yeah. time something is slightly up with the Conservative Party at the moment. She she had a cough. Her voice literally failed. Her. Like That was the worst party conference speech there ever. Everything went wrong with it. So Liz Truss at least had quite a low bar to pass, and she did. Um, and people after that conference speech, the being the primary one, were going, well, I'm unsure, but we've all got to rally round her. She's our leader. We've got to give her, her time to prove what she can do. So <laughs> they give her about a week, I would say, in office. And then it's pretty clear that after the banks, Bank of England had already stepped in to calm the guild markets, once, which we discussed in the previous episode. But essentially, if they go up too high, then bad stuff happens to our pensions. That's as economically complex as I'm going to get into it. Um, the Bank of England stopped that support. And once again, those markets were creeping up. And they were like, oh my goodness, are the Bank of England going to keep doing their policy of essentially quantitative easing, which is making money up and buying these guilds to try and keep them artificially low. Can they do Can they do that again? Is that sustainable? And it came increasingly clear to people that Liz Truss's economic policy that she'd laid out was not compatible with the economy at the moment for whatever reason. Um, so something had to happen. You've got Kwasi Kwarteng as Chancellor of the Exchequer, He's over in a summit meeting in New York with the IMF. And on Friday, I believe he's interviewed and they say, are you going to be chancellor in the next month? And, you know, after Christmas, he says, absolutely. Yes. I believe it's the next day or pretty darn close to it on the Monday, just over the weekend. He is flown home on a, on a special flight to be put in front of Liz Truss, who says, I'm sorry, Quasi, this plan isn't working. I'm firing you. And not only that, I'm replacing you with Jeremy Hunt. Uh, 
So Jeremy Hunt is seen as, well, what's your opinion of, of Jeremy Hunt compared to Fuzzy Quartang? Because I think he's... A man famous for being his own rhyming slang. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, Jeremy Hunt is generally not regarded well by anyone who uh, cares for the NHS, basically, is the way I'd put it. Um, uh, you may remember, oh, it may have been even before we started this podcast, there was a period where there were a lot of junior doctor strikes, and that was with Hunt at the helm. Um, and then he went off and did some other things. He was culture secretary for a while, which uh, made it easier for the spoonerism involving his name to take place. Um but uh, yeah, he like I, I think he probably is competent. I just don't agree with his what he does in practice. Like I don't think he was good for the NHS. But I think com- compared to Quasi Quarting, who I don't know much about, and based on his very short tenure, uh, has uh, not filled me with any confidence in him. At least I think Jeremy Hunt is is you know someone who know, like reads his briefs and things like that. Um, uh, so I mean that's that's a positive for him. I just don't happen to agree with a lot of his policies, but at least in this case where he was like, let's sort sort things out. Like, you know, it seemed at least he was aware of what the sensible things were to do in this case. Yeah. That's and, the, and you're the right. nicest I, praise I could possibly give. <laughs> so <laughs> no, you're right. I think you've shown the positives and negatives of Jeremy Hunt. So the big negative is that he is he is known to people and people don't necessarily have a popular view of him. So you bring him into your cabinet, you're not necessarily giving yourself a big publicity boost with that move. Um However, one of the big problems that the Trust administration sort of caused for itself right at the start is that she had quite a small pool of MPs to pull from to create her cabinet. Um, and the talent there, as, as often happens when you get lots of leaders in one party over a time, is that more of your talent starts ending up on the back benches because they are alienated. They they backed David Cameron or they backed Theresa May and those those that version of politics seems to have failed. So they get shoved to the back benches where those who supported Boris Johnson, Liz Truss, they're the ones who get their time to be ministers, right? Um, and Liz Truss, when she started up her cabinet, it was very much full of trust supporters. Usually when you're in a tight leadership election, you at least put a few people from your cabinet, sorry, from the opposition side in your cabinet. Um, it's even possible that you might put the person you ran against in your cabinet as a gesture of good faith or to keep party unity. Um Liz Truss had not done that. It was very much team trust within her cabinet, which meant the moment that she got rid of Kwasi Kwarteng, there wasn't a great deal that she could pull from. So she had to pull from Jeremy Hunt, who is seen, at least within the Conservative Party, he is seen as a competent minister, as you described. He reads his brief. He's he's the grown-up in the room. He's got big head-boy energy, um, as it were. <laughs> yep. Uh, and Sorry. he's... Uh, <laughs> no, that's all right. That's not. It's not quite BD energy, but yeah, no, he's a head boy energy. Um, and he's he's from a different wing of the party, so you can try and unite your party around you, which was vital for Truss because what she did next was essentially the mother of all U-turns. Jeremy Hunt walks up to the microphone um, at eleven a.m. on Monday. Uh, apparently, he'd briefed the speaker before, saying this usually would go through Parliament, but look, the markets are so unstable at the moment. I need to make a statement now to to calm them. So they allowed them to do that. And in that statement, he essentially says that Liz Trust budget that you had a couple of weeks ago, it's gone. The tax cuts are gone. We're reintroducing the national insurance stuff. Um, pretty much all this, this uncosted spending that they'd put in uh, was gotten rid of. And the big increase to public spending, that two-year energy bill freeze, that was reduced to six months. So that's the big impact that it had in the in the short term. The markets calmed down. So yay, you appear to have saved the economy in the short term. However, you are left with this big question, which essentially is, what's the point of Liz Truss? As the uh, private eye mentioned earlier, alluded to the idea that, like, essentially, yes, what is the point of Liz Truss? Is Jeremy Hunt not running the show here if he's undone everything that she said she stood for? Yeah, we we were told again and again and again that her and Kwasi Kwarteng were one and the same; that they were in lockstep when it came to this budget. Um, so to fire your chancellor, essentially, when all that he's done is follow exactly the same of instructions that you gave him. What has he done wrong? If he has to go, surely you have to go. And and that was the question that a lot of the media wanted to ask, as well as um, people within her own party, uh, who suddenly went, hey, I I voted for Liz Truss, and the reason I voted for you was for you to implement your economic plan. Now you're not doing that. So why, why would I continue to support you? 
this announcement on Monday was followed by, well, sorry, there were a, a slightly mixing up my timeline, but there were other things that exacerbated the problem for Lystra. One was when she got rid of her chancellor, she hosted a news conference to say why she'd got rid of him. It was one of the shortest. She gathered, you know, you gather the world's press or the news stops. You've got all of the big beasts of the BBC, Channel 4, all the newspapers there. She spoke in kind of platitudes for five minutes, stopped to take questions. She took four questions in total, in which I'm pretty sure that she just said the same answer again and again and didn't answer the actual question, and then left for a total of eight minutes. And apparently the mood in that room afterwards was sort of disbelief that the Prime Minister would get everybody out of bed for this. It was... Sorry, I, I remember it. I remember what day it was now. So she put Hunt in on Monday, but she got rid of Quasi on the Friday. And a lot of these journalists, like they were talking to Andrew Marr and the BBC's political correspondent. A lot of these journalists take Friday off because not much happens on a Friday. They've all been dragged out there to listen to this massive statement where she says nothing. Um, and even there was a clip doing the rounds where she paused for what seemed like an age. She's got a very bad habit of stopping to think about something, but you just get this crazy dead air um, where she searched the room to look for somebody who might ask her a soft question, finally settling on the journalist from The Sun, who then, again, asked the question that we were all thinking, what's the point of you, Prime Minister? You've just sacked your Chancellor. Why don't you go as well? Which wasn't a soft question. There were no soft questions in that day. So not only has she undermined her own performance as somebody who's competent with delivering policy, when you look at her ability to talk to journalists, to the media, to communicate her message, she was also failing at that. So on all fronts, it seemed to be going wrong for Liz Truss at this stage. And I think that that insistence on silence was again followed up by uh, a bizarre appearance on Monday where Labour raised an emergency question about why Jeremy Hunt is Chancellor, why have you had to introduce these new economic measures? They invited the Prime Minister to answer that emergency question. In her place instead went Penny Mordaunt, the leader of the House of Commons, who time and time again had to say that Liz Truss was off doing something incredibly urgent. She's detained. She can't possibly be here and was forced to utter the words which sort of fell into a trap, I think, from the opposition bench. You're never meant to repeat the question that was just given to you. Um, but it was a BBC News alert, Penny Mordaunt saying that uh, the Prime Minister was not hiding under a desk, which has to be up there as one of the all-time bizarre breaking news alerts I've ever had. Um, uh, made all the funnier if you were aware of the uh, Twitter account um, BBC Breaking News, which is uh, ooooifies every tweet that BBC Breaking News does via some bot, um, which is just possibly the funniest way to receive news, um, as long as it's not the death of a monarch. So you're left on Monday, I think, with people thinking, oh my goodness, she's she's done. On, on Monday, I think I said to the group, I was like, I've got a feeling that she's going soon. And the press was in that mood too. They didn't know if she would last till Christmas or until the end of the week or whatever, which seems bizarre. You've had a prime minister in for such a short period of time, but every time she was tested, she seemed to be failing or be unaccountable or not be able to step up to the plate. I do think that that silence on Monday was maybe what started to turn MPs against her. So we move on and everybody sort of got PMQs marked down in their diary as the big event for what uh, I certainly did. However, it appears that Liz Truss spent most of her time on Tuesday preparing for PMQs because the feeling amongst the general media was that she'd done okay. Now, personally, I, did you watch any of PMQs? I know I, I usually ask this question. Was this one that you set time aside for or you watched the highlights of? Uh, unfortunately, uh, as, as I've said, busy week in, in the free show for Patreons. Uh, you should go check that out uh, or become a Patreon for only a dollar a month. Um, that's my shilling done, but yes, uh, no, um, I, uh, I didn't watch all of it, but I've seen clips, uh, and yeah, there, there, it, it was, it was pretty bad for Truss, uh, let's put it that way. <laughs> yes, so I think when people said, oh, she did all right, it was like, at least she came out fighting, she wasn't, she didn't look resigned to defeat, pardon me, sorry, she didn't look resigned to defeat defeat. But her biggest problem was that Labour clearly didn't respect her or value her as a leader. Most of the things Keir Starmer was saying to her were punchline. Um, I think he opened with, there's a book coming out, Prime Minister. Um, it's out by Christmas. Is that the is that the release date or the title? Okay, boom, boom, ching. 
laughter from the opposition benches. Uh, there was one where Keir Starmer was listing all of the things that she'd U-turned on and said gone, and the rest of the Labour benches were going, gone, gone, gone. It was like a football chat. I've never quite known an atmosphere in the Commons like it, where one side is so entirely behind their leader and the other side seems quite deflated. Uh, the only highlight from Truss is probably a line, well, sorry, there were two things. One was she was able to sort of get a, a policy announcement out all of a sudden. There were in the papers that morning, all of them had said that, oh, Jeremy Hunt might have to abandon the triple lock on pensions, which is essentially a, a system that makes sure that pensions keep in line with inflation, that, that they're protected, that people who get their pension get a fair amount of money from the state. Um, there was a worry that that wasn't going to happen. And of course, if that doesn't happen, then you're going to alienate conservative voters even more because, as it happens, most elderly people tend to vote conservative. That's just how the demographics break down. So they reneged on, so, so there was a worry that they were going to go back on that manifesto promise. Liz Trust said, no, we're not. We're going to keep the pensions triple lock. So, okay, tick if you're a conservative in that box. Well done. Uh, the other thing is that she came out and she said that I am a fighter, not a quitter, um, which essentially, yeah, it, it showed her that she was going to fight for this job. She knew that maybe in her heart of hearts that she only goes if the party has somebody to replace her with. She's meant to be safe as, as it comes by like the 1922 committee. Like that's meant to be something where she's not meant to be challenged for a year. She should have a year without MPs being able to remove her. There's no obvious successor waiting in the wings of the party, so why would they get rid of me now? Like, she's got... She had a few things in her favour. So I think she walks out of PMQs thinking, I've given myself a, a stay of execution, I think, for, for now, I'm safe. Then we have uh, what only can be described as chaos. I know you've had a busy week, but were you keeping an eye on the news on Wednesday night? Because this was like... This was like Brexflix all over again for me. Um, I am very fortunate that not only am I in a group chat with you and a few friends who pay attention to politics, but I'm in a number of uh, discords of uh, British people who pay attention to the news. So uh, even if I'm not directly following Twitter, I tend to get the key updates. So yes, no, I was... Uh, uh, Wednesday was not particularly stressful for me. I just had a normal work day and so couldn't really watch PMQs. But yeah, Wednesday, I actually had a free evening. So I, And I think I, I had great plans to you know do one of my hobbies in in the evening and i think i just sat in front of the laptop gawking at every thing that came out just being like what is going on which i think was the feeling of a lot of the mps as well so do you want to fill people in on what happened wednesday evening so in the afternoon you get the news that oh my goodness the home secretary suella braverman has resigned uh, home secretary is one of the four great offices of state behind sort of prime minister foreign secretary chancellor and home secretary they're meant to be where you put all your big dogs that's where you put all your main loyal supporters. They run those big offices of state and they stay there for a while. She's already lost the chancellor. Out of the blue, she loses her home secretary. Now, Braverman says that she did it because that she had to resign because she'd broken the ministerial code, uh, which was essentially sending a private document over her uh, public email, which it is technically a breach of the ministerial code rules. However, a lot of people looked at that and said, well, out of stuff that, you know, Boris Johnson has kept pretty Patel on for bullying, etc., etc., or you, you, of all the things that you could go for, this seems incredibly minor. Has she been pushed out of the role? So there was, there was question marks over whether Braverman and Liz Truss had had a falling out particularly over immigration, where they seem to have very differing views. Braverman was not keen on having more people into the country. Liz Truss had said that we needed more people in the country to fill the skill gap. If you need growth, then you need to encourage some immigration to fill those jobs. Uh, so that was one of the big key things against them. Um, secondly, in her resignation letter, Braverman attacks Liz Truss um, in some uh, subtle ways by basically saying, when I make a mistake, I know I have to resign subtext why you do that too liz um and secondly basically saying that oh i think the the conservative party is not going in the right direction at the moment we need a change so undermined immediately she has to find a new home secretary that's on our list of things to do i just want to, to just butt in at this point to say uh it's it's one of those interesting I, I there are very few letters i've read in my life that start off like i i guess sometimes you get a rejection letter from like like a job where they're like oh we really liked you but uh you know we're not offering you the job and i feel like it was very 
much like, the first few paragraphs being like, you know, I've worked in this government, I've done my and then it kind of just turns on a dime in that, I think it was third or fourth paragraph in this, uh, as you say, throws Liz Truss under the bus. Liz Truss thrown under the bus. Nice rhyming slang there. Yeah, so she's got, so that's out of the way. Next of all, for some reason, well, sorry, it's not the government's doing, it's Labour's doing. Labour have set a trap for the Conservatives. They've got an opposition day motion, which says we would like the House of Commons to vote on if you ban fracking or not. And the Conservatives come out and say this is essentially a confidence vote. It's a three-line whip, which means if you don't vote with the way the government says, you will face disciplinary action, which could include being thrown out of the Conservative Party. Now, fracking is a very contentious issue and one that Liz Truss seems to have followed, knowing that it hasn't got the backing of many of her MPs. We touched on it briefly last time, but essentially the main problem is the places where they would frack are places where Conservative MPs are in charge. They don't want it to happen in their backyard. Um, they're worried about the consultation process and how local people's objections to it will be sustained. Um, the government has repeatedly said, yes, we'll, we'll listen to local concerns and we'll not put it in where locals don't want it. But the precise mechanism for locals to say no has never really been cemented down. And that makes Conservative MPs very nervous when it comes to this commitment. Essentially, fracking is another one of those things Liz Truss thinks we need to do for growth and energy security but is still very unpopular among the general public. So by making a confidence motion, she's saying to some Conservative MPs, you need to vote for fracking, even though you've always campaigned against it and your local party really doesn't like it. And for a lot of these Conservatives, that's a hard choice to make. Uh, among them, I believe one of the biggest sort of outspoken people from the backbenches was William Ragg, who was the vice chairman of the of the 1922 committee, who essentially said in the Commons in the debate beforehand uh, that, hey, I would like to vote against this motion, but I also have a letter in with the 1922 committee that says I want Listras out. And if I'm not a Conservative Party member, then I'll lose my letter to the 1922 committee. And I don't want that to happen. So I'm not quite sure how to vote. Yeah, <laughs> it's a an interesting catch-22. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Can, can I still, can I get rid of her if she's not the leader of the party that I'm a part of? Anyway, about 20 minutes before the vote is going to go ahead on the floor of the House of Commons, the person leading it says, wait, we've changed our mind. It's not a confidence motion. You can vote how you like. Off to the lobbies, off you go to vote. Now, now MPs are confused. And most importantly, the whips are confused. The whips have been briefed all day that this is a confidence motion and they've got to get as many people voting for in, in favour of Liz Truss's plan as possible. Um, whereas some MPs are saying, I was just told it wasn't a confidence motion. I think I'm free to vote how I like. The chaos that ensued, and when I say chaos, we're talking about reports um, from Chris Bryant, the Labour MP, of uh, people being manhandled and physically forced to vote certain ways in the lobby. There were accusations of bullying. There were there were accounts on Twitter that accused uh, Theresa Coffey as the um, the... the that's what a vice president, sorry, she's the, um, <laughs> Theresa Coffey, the deputy prime minister, being the one who manhandled a PM, uh, an MP into one of the voting booths. Jacob Rees-Mogg was meant to be one of the people shouting orders, trying to get people to vote a certain way. Uh, the whips apparently were in absolute chaos, and it was the deputy whip who said the line, I'm effing done, I just don't effing care anymore, uh, which did the rounds and was part of a very uh, fruity I don't know. Very colourful German news broadcast. Um, and the effing version was also used um, on an ITV, at the beginning to the ITV news, where newscasters, everybody watching on just seemed to be, these, this is definitely unprecedented scene. This is, this is chaos. And despite the fact that the government won that vote, fairly convincingly in the end, they didn't have to worry too much about the actual result. What came out of it, the accusations of bullying, and for a couple of hours, we thought that both the whip and the deputy whip had resigned from their posts. It was not the sign of a functioning government. And I think that was the main problem that was trust and come Wednesday. I think the thing that was most ridiculous was the next morning when it was like, actually, this vote, I think it was an email sent at 3am, which was actually this vote was a confidence vote in the government. And so suddenly there were 40 MPs who had voted against the government who were like, uh, what happens to me? Am I no longer a conservative? What's going on? Um, and I think then the pressure started to mount on Thursday. And I think because um, I think you'd said you were or, or possibly your wife had said you were watching the TV and shouting it like it was the football. 
and uh, you had a feeling in your water, I believe is how you described it, that she might go on Wednesday or Tuesday. And then she didn't go, but things were definitely bad. And come Thursday morning, it was just even more confusing. So I guess what happened from there? What, what happened Thursday? Yeah, it was, it was an absolute spiral. And yeah, the thing I was shouting at the TV for was, I, I'm really sorry, I can't find... I can't remember the name of the the MP involved, but it was the one on the BBC that reacted straight after the vote, who essentially said, I've been a good Conservative MP for 17 years, and I've never seen anything like that. Um, And that they they said, oh, I'll get in trouble for saying this, but I have had it with people within my party who vote not for the good of the country, but vote to get their ministerial boxes, that little red box. Well, I hope it was worth it. I hope sitting around the table was was worth the trouble because you have ruined the Conservative Party, which is, that's like a big spill the tea moment. The reason I was shouting and cheering for that is because you're so used to seeing the same Conservative talking heads ever since sort of 2019, just spouting the party line and refusing to acknowledge reality or any semblance of what goes of what's going on in the conservative party and why they do it so to have somebody from the inside just say yeah i'm 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 fed up i'm i'm done that's how that's where liz truss's government was pushing people that's why you get whipped using obscenities and, and saying that that's what people do when they've been loyal to a job for years and years and years and suddenly they snap and they go there's no point trying to even pretend anymore here's the honest so yeah, things were very, very bad on Thursday. Everybody wondering how she can cover from this or even if she can. Uh, then about 10, 11, there's news that Graham Brady, who is the leader of the 1922 committee, um, has been summoned by the prime minister. To to them. So he hasn't approached her. She's approached him. And I think essentially she's trying to get a mood of where the party sits, how many letters are now in his office. We have no idea of how many letters Graham Brady got all was sent. I think that's all kept internally in you know, Conservative Party HQ. Yeah, I think the only the only thing we knew was that there was a discussion about the threshold changing right down to thirty three percent of the normal amount or something. Maybe I've got confused and we can cut. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, that there, there were discussions, and essentially, even though we, we mentioned earlier in the podcast that. Oh, by 1922 committee rules, she has a year. The point is that the committee can just vote to change the rules whenever it wants. It's not part of the, it's, it's ruled by the Conservative Party and not by the Parliament. So it's not like you need to get all MPs to vote on it. You only need Conservative MPs to have a vote to change the rules. And then you can get rid of Liz Truss however you want. And the suspicion is that Graham Brady might have come in and said, look, over half of your political party is against you leading this. Anytime you try and get anything through the Commons, there's a big chance it won't pass because you don't have the support of MPs. And it's probably that calculation that led Liz Truss to, at about half past one, say that she was going to make a statement. And that's where we got, out of the blue, her resignation speech. Uh, just just on the subject of the resignation speech, obviously there are clips of it. I'm sure you can find a normal clip of it online. But given Rob's interests, I have found the clip for him. This will be in the show notes. And it is a trombone champ, Liz Truss, resigns <laughs> as Prime Minister. <laughs> Oh, fantastic. I don't know if you want to watch that before we move um, on. I can, I can, it's, it's in the Discord. It's only, the, it's only two minutes long. This is that glorious bit of podcasting where we watch a video and <laughs> laugh at it. I'll be, I'll be very quick. <laughs> <laughs> this trombone is too good. It's on auto toot. Oh, okay, they're doing, yeah. Sorry, listening to her speech behind the, the trombone, if I will. Um, it, it was a bizarre resignation speech because usually a leader comes out and they're able to point to things that they have achieved at their time in, in office. Even Boris was able to say, oh, I got Brexit done, etc. Yeah. Uh, correct. Yeah, yeah. Where Liz Truss sort of said, I've come in at a time of great economic instability. Everybody said, well, I think you might have caused some of that economic stability, instability even. Um, so th- maybe put that on hold. Uh, we got some of the hits where she kind of mentions her like delivering and plan for growth and Putin's illegal war. All of those phrases that had been drilled into her during a, a time in office and then kind of said, oh, but it's clear that I can't lead anymore. Um, I'm going to go. There will now be a conservative leadership contest and it will take a week instead of the six weeks that it took. Um, and it was it was over as soon as it had begun. I believe that somebody worked out that she'd been in office for 44 days. That campaign over the summer was six weeks. 
Acts. So she probably campaigned to be prime minister longer than she was prime minister. And we haven't even mentioned the most important thing yet. There is so much that's happened. I haven't even touched upon one of the great cultural milestones of our nation, which is the Daily Star in the run-up. But ever since Kuateng left, actually, they'd said, okay, can Liz Truss outlive the shelf life of this lettuce? And they put a lettuce with googly eyes and a wig and live streamed it next to a picture of Liz Truss. <laughs> and the, the scenes on the YouTube when she resigned <laughs> and disco lights went on and Celebrate Good Times was played over the top as it was declared that the lettuce had won the lettuce was prime minister now was yeah quite something to behold and we didn't do headlines this week but if we'd done headlines the, the some of the stars lettuce puns were superb um we don't always get it right with how mad they can be on some of the stuff they do but uh yeah that campaign seemed to be it, it became the like the, the light-hearted story that other that globally people were saying oh by the way um in you know in funnier news the will this lettuce outlast um, Liz Truss's premiership. But yes, um, yeah, no, that was very funny. Um, I did see on Twitter someone, uh, I mean, we're going to get to the polls later and the number of people who might vote Conservative might be a bit lower than it was last time we spoke. Um, but uh, someone obviously of a Conservative persuasion going, moaning at the Daily Star, being, oh, why are you being so political about this? I mean, ignoring the fact that newspapers are generally political, but they're like, no, this story isn't political. We just don't like stupidity, <laughs> which I thought was just the perfect <laughs> comeback. Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was impressive. It was, it was the thing everyone was watching, at least in part on YouTube. Um, and yeah, uh, leaf, leafy lettuce puns for everyone. It was, so yeah, as, as quickly as it's done in, in two podcast episodes, we've gone from explaining what Liz Truss is all about to recalling her demise. It's very, usually on these occasions, I try and like sum up a premiership or think what they've achieved or done, but it was, it's going to be so, I think Liz Truss will, unfortunately for her, be remembered as a really odd footnote in Britain's history, and kind of as a case study of everything you shouldn't do as prime minister. And it, it makes me, as we're about to go into the, the leadership contest and what happens, it, it's worrying that that candidate, who was very quickly found out that she was not adequately prepared for office, how she could go through six weeks of campaigning and people felt that she was still the best choice. I, I have my theories about how they did it. But I don't know if you've got an, an opinion on why exactly Liz Truss failed as hard and as, as quickly as she did. I mean, I, I saw quite an interesting Twitter thread on this, actually, where it's kind of like you can understand why she got put in by the kind of people who uh, are the Brexiteer side of the party. She was promising to do all the things they wanted, you know, cut taxes, do all this stuff, this libertarian ideal that kind of been put forward by people like Rhys Mogg, etc. and the ERG. I saw quite an interesting thread on Twitter, which I'll have to find to put in the show notes, where someone said, look, th these people, the ERG kind of people, are kind of in their own, they've drunk their own Kool-Aid, where they, back in the 1980s, kind of started to have these kind of very libertarian ideas that don't really work. Like more so, you know, despite the fact she starred herself after Thatcher, she went way further. Like people talking about, I saw something the other day, people saying, oh, you know, corporation tax. I'm saying, oh, you know, our corporation taxes um, needs to be lowered and all of this. And it's like 19%. It's so low. But back when Thatcher was there, it was like nearly 50%. So it's like maybe, <laughs> you know, it's, it's weird to see them being like, no, it has to go even lower. And you're like, well, Thatcher lowered it from 50% maybe, but like it was still high compared to now. The general point of this thread was that these ERG people have been like, no, this is the way forward. This is what's good for Britain. And obviously it would be good for certain people's pockets. People like Rhys Mogg, who, uh, as we know, uh, what, this is one of those things we have to be careful about how you say this, but we know that Rhys Mogg is involved in uh, fun, uh, you know, investment funds and that investment funds can do shorting and that when Brexit happened, the investment fund may have done some shorting. Uh, but we, you know, you can't say, you couldn't say say that he specifically profited of it, but you can point out various things uh, that uh, could lead someone to form such an opinion. Um, and I think that's been pointed out in private eye in a way that's definitely legally safe. So, you know, it's not, not, not libel. It's, uh, there, there are some facts here and you, you are allowed to draw your own conclusions. Um, but the, uh, yeah, basically these, these people kind of going for this is this hard Brexit idea and it will be it will free us from Brussels, it will free us from this and we'll be able to set our own fiscal policy and we'll be able to do our own thing. But the problem is our fiscal policy is affected by global markets and other things. You can't be this 100% freewheeling state without being affected by the global markets. And that's exactly what happened is 
trust came and said, I'm going to do all this stuff. And all these people who were like, yeah, that's exactly what we think would work, cheered. But all their ideas, in theory, only worked if you ignore the fact that the global markets are watching. And the global markets went, nah, that's, that's a stupid idea. Um, so everything tanked. And that was the problem, was that they kind of, it's almost like for 30, 40 years, they've had this theory and it's been put to the test and it's just failed them. And so there are people who still think that theory is sound in some way, but they, I don't think they are seeing the reality that in a globalized world, like unless we cut ourselves off and become Brexit Island completely, we still like, you know, there's all this stuff where they're like, we're going to leave the European Union, but we can still trade with all these people over here. But, you know, that that's the problem here is that we're part of a global market. And so stupid things we do are seen by the global market. And they go, oh, I don't think I want to leave my money with you anymore. And so they pull out. And that's where all the you know, the pound falling and all that came from. So I think it's this kind of inability to understand how interlinked everything is, especially now in a very global world. Um, and without short of becoming North Korea, I don't think there's really a way we can, you, you can test their, their, their theory properly. So yeah, that's a bit of a rambly answer, but I think that's probably why there are some people who still support Liz Trust because they, they are part of this kind of cult that believes they're right about this one idea, but it kind of falls down in practice. Yes, and I, and I think you're exactly right that that wing of the party, who it appears to be like, like members want to vote for that as well, remember, like members that they had a choice between two and they chose Liz Truss over, over Rishi Sunak. So that's clearly what members believe they want their economic policy to be. Um, but the fact that Liz Truss was put there in the first place, it's almost like there were people behind her telling her she could be PM, even though she was clearly not designed for it or ever could do it. She was sort of pushed into that position because she was the only one, the acceptable choice out of that bunch that would follow that argument. Because Nadine Doris wasn't going to run, Jacob Rees-Mogg wasn't going to run, but they were happy to push Liz Truss in front of the cameras and say, no, she'll she'll do it. She's the established cabinet minister who's been in the government ever since 2010 under David Cameron. I think that's why she was nominated but just didn't have the she clearly had the desire to lead but not the ability in the end and that was it was it was suddenly when she was under that spotlight it was all shown so clearly wasn't it um you've got it's very different being a minister and having to do a couple of tv performances and being able to duck out of a few when you're just yeah foreign secretary but being prime minister everybody expects that the buck stops with you she's to really struggle with that concept as, as soon as she got rid of her her chancellor it was it was over for me that was she had to stick to that decision and the line of i'm doing this for the good of my country is really odd when you're the one who wrecked the economy or you know brought that danger into the economy in, in the first place so yes so long liz trust uh, now the conservative party has another bit of a of a problem on it sorry you said so long liz trust and of course my brain automatically added thanks for all the fish but i don't think there are any <laughs> fish involved so so long liz trust and thanks for all the pork market um sorry so yeah what happens next we need to have another leader put in place obviously um i feel like the country probably doesn't want a long and extended leadership election like we had over the summer uh, just to point out, Liz Truss's premiership will, when she has resi uh, resigned based on what we're about to discuss um, and, and actually left, will be shorter than the leadership election that elected her. So we can't really faff around for another, you know, however many how many weeks it was. So so what what's happening instead? You said the 1992 committee sets all these rules. They must have have something in place for, for well, for, for from now on. Yes. So they, we've got a week-long contest and the rules are pretty simple. You need 100 MPs to nominate you. That's the threshold for nomination. Um, you need to do that by Monday. Uh, the MPs will then, if there's more than three, because... There are 300 and something odd MPs in the Conservative Party. So if there are more than three nominations, then the MPs will vote until you have two remaining. And then those two will go to the Conservative members. And that vote will happen by an online ballot. So it's super speedy. And then we will get our new leader of the Conservative Party. Uh, so, yeah, these rules are set up for a, a reason, um, which is... Uh, I think the Conservative Party is really desperate to not have another Liz Truss happen to them, uh, where Liz Truss had the support of the members, but not the support of her MPs. So by setting the threshold at 100, that is quite a high bar for anybody who wants to be leader to get nominated, as in Liz Truss only got 100 MPs in the final round of voting, I believe, to get to the last two. Um, she didn't have it in the first round with that support. So you've got to have that support from the very start. And with only... It's three, six, five, roughly. Um, I may be off by a few uh, Conservative MPs. That means there only will be three candidates maximum going into that first round. So it helps ensure that it will be a quick process because 
three, two, one is is the best it can be, and that and that's assuming we get three who can reach that threshold in the first place. Yeah. So there are only about three names in mind, um, and they come from people who, unsurprisingly, ran in the last um, leadership election and the wild. So we've got <laughs> Rishi Sunak who got to the last two. He's declared and he's put forward. You've got Penny Morden who's also declared that she's running, uh, and then you have <laughs> the spectre at the feast. You've got Boris Johnson who, although adds as of recording, has not formally thrown his hat into the ring to say that he is standing, but uh, has quite the support of a few MPs. There are reasons why uh, we are at a time where the Conservative Party has no good choices to make, I believe. Whichever way they go with this, they are damned if they do, and they're damned if they don't. Um, it appears at the moment that it'll be a choice between Rishi Sunak or Boris Johnson. Those two appear to be the only ones who have any serious backing. But I think any more than will fail to get over a hundred. Um, so this is the situation for the Conservative Party and why it will be good and why it will be bad. So let's start with Boris Johnson, who um, is a man. Clearly, we know what he's done in the past. He has only left us a short while ago as Prime Minister. Conservative Party MPs who support him put forward this argument, which is only one, one you know, Boris Johnson won a mandate in 2019 from the general public. If we want to avoid the calls for a general election, which are getting very, very loud from opposition sides and from the, gen- the public in general, we feel that, you know, the last time the Conservatives were left up to pick their own leader, they elected Liz Truss. Um, if you want to have any sort of validity in governing, then Boris Johnson gives you that validity without having to go to the general population straight away, right? Because he's got that mandate from 20. The Conservative Party also feel that he is popular amongst the members and the grassroots of the Conservative Party. So we haven't touched on the polling, uh, but I believe Liz Truss was able to bring the Conservative numbers down under 20%. I've seen figures of like 15%. Polls, which is low. I have seen some dubious calculations based on these numbers that suggest the Conservative Party might have five MPs if a general election was held today. Now, I think I think there's some issues with the the numbers done there because their their Scottish numbers are also a bit out. Um, but yes, uh, yeah, it it it's bad. If, if they were to have a general election today, it's very bad based on. And polls will narrow a bit before a general election, but these are the worst polls um, for the Conservative Party since '97 which tells you something, that famous landslide victory that kept Tony Blair and the rest of the Labour Party in power for, what, 12 years? 13 years? Well, uh, yeah, yes, at least. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. 2010 was the coalition, so yeah, 13 years. Yeah, so yeah, it, it is it is bad for the Conservative Party, and, and I agree with you, I don't think there's a, a good choice to make. There's three people who were really kind of like listed, and you said Penny Mordaunt might not actually achieve the number of 100. At the moment, Boris Johnson has apparently 52 people declared for him, but there's claims that he has 100. So it may just be like, and we know last night Rishi and, and Boris had had a behind closed doors meeting. So maybe there is like some some bluster here where, you know, Boris can say, oh, I've got all these people. And actually, then it turns out, well, Rishi gets the votes and Boris doesn't actually put himself forwards. And then that just makes it a very swift answer for the nation but i mean i think we discussed this before i think i said out of the group of people running last time i think i said rishi was probably the best of a bad bunch because we had economic issues and he has been chancellor and i think most people are quite happy with how he handled covid and stuff like that but he does have the sense that we have to cut back in certain way and i think if you kind of lay out his arguments most people go that sounds fairly fair to me even if there are specific things you might take issue with amongst the broader package i think his idea is very kind of that. Whereas Boris, we know, is kind of the other side, likes to spend, spend, spend for a conservative. And regardless of whether you think Boris should even be allowed in this, like if we're just looking at kind of how we get out of this current situation we're in, I feel like his is kind of the opposite of Liz Truss in, in the opposite way. And it's kind of like we, we want the thing in the middle. And then I don't really know what Penny Mordaunt's um, ideas are for the economy. Uh, I couldn't She's tell not- you. I'm sure she has she's got put nice something hair. In. Yeah, she's got nice hair. Um, apparently, yeah. uh, you know, uh, men on conservative home think she's attractive, but I don't think that should be the reason you vote someone in. I think the main thing she did during the leadership contest over the summer was she kind of threw the LGBTQ plus community under the bus because she was seen. I think there was literally an article from Gay Times or someone like that saying, oh, yeah, she's the most LGBTQ plus positive person there. And then like the next day, she's like, oh, yes, no. And because she was trying to appeal to the members, she was like, oh, I hate trans people or something like that, which I, I can't remember the exact term details, but it, she kind of went from people being like, oh, she might be all right for, for this subset of the population 
who need some help at the moment because uh, the conservatives aren't generally helping them out. Um, but uh, then she kind of turned around on it and like, because it was for the popular vote. So I, I think, uh, and I say the popular vote, not the popular vote of the country, but the popular vote of the conservative members who are, you know, uh, not, not the group uh, who are the most supportive of LGBTQ plus issues, uh, it's fair to say. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we're sat here in a week with Rishi Sunak, Prime Minister, although obviously the true chaos option is Boris Johnson returns comes back in only to be kicked out just before Christmas because the Parliamentary Standards Committee have found him wanting in the current inquiry against him. So uh, there may be reasons like if, I mean, we can only speculate as to what happened behind closed doors, uh, Boris and Rishi talking, but I could see an argument for uh, Boris goes, like, realistically, I can't come back in now. You know, however much he likes to bluster about it and would love to come back, I'm sure. I And like the saviour of the party, very Churchillian, uh, as Fries models himself after, probably realizes he can't actually do this. Like, I'd like to think he has enough sense to see that. He's he's generally been quite politically savvy, uh, you know, when he's trying to get into the position of power. So I think he probably knows it's not the right time to come to stage a comeback, really, even if there is this thing about having a um a mandate. Unless he's like, he's like, I'm gonna quash this inquiry. Come on, Rishi, we'll go toe to toe. But I, I feel like maybe he's like, Oh, this you know, people are talking about this inquiry. Maybe we should just give it <laughs> give it a minute for me. And what I'll do is I'll claim I've got all these people voting for me. And actually they'll vote for you, Rishi, because I won't stand. And then as I say, suddenly we have one main contender. Penny Mordaunt can't can't even get the 100. Rishi gets 200 and something because everyone who would have gone for Boris goes for him. And then it's done. And we're over and we're like, okay, cool. We've got one candidate. Um, uh, that would be the the super. And, and that also gives stability as quickly as possible because it's just, it's over. We have a choice. Um, it's less democratic. People will complain about it for various reasons, but you can see why the Conservative Party might want that outcome of a quick. And, and again, I think most people, like, I don't think many people are talking about the fact that Rishi Sunak was fined for being at a part of, like, people think that's a Boris problem. Uh, Rishi was kind of caught up in that, and I think most people are less worried about that. It, the things we've discussed before with Rishi Sunak in previous episodes, which I'll put in the show notes, uh, are more about, like, the fact, you know, he's um, being a millionaire, uh, the stuff to do with his wife's company, and the stuff to do with his, um, uh, uh, I forget the term, for uh, citizenship in the US that allows him to get out of tax. green card. Green yeah. card, there you go. Yeah, so so, so th those things, I think, do mar him a bit, but I haven't heard anyone mention them since they came about. I think in the world of politics where things can get forgotten quickly, people are like, oh, you know, most people when you mention Rishi Sunak still think about, oh, you know, he helped us out during COVID. So I think for the person on the street, out of the three options, I mean, I know there are a load of people who love Boris, but I, I just don't think even with, like, I think Boris is too marred to, to help them. And if they want someone who can sit there for two years until they hopefully lose the next general election, um, I mean, that's obviously not, that's me talking, not the Conservative Party. I'm sure they want to win the next general election. I think it's very hard uh, to see a way to them winning another general election. Uh, the British public would have to forget a lot, although they have done that before. So um, uh, I don't know if you had more here before we move into the polls. Yeah, there was just a little bit. I just think that I, obviously I said a lot about what was what, why Conservatives felt he was good. And I think you've mentioned a lot about like why he's bad. Just to, just to stress like why Boris Johnson coming back would be a bad thing for the Conservative Party is that one, he, he has become their Jeremy Corbyn in a way that um, Jeremy Corbyn was loved by members but then was unelectable by the country. Like it came in 2019 that people clearly thought that Jeremy Corbyn wasn't fit to be leader of the country. No matter what your personal view on that, public opinion swayed heavily in that direction. So when it came down to a choice between Johnson and Corbyn, the public went away from Corbyn and he wasn't able to replicate the success that he had back in 2017. Labour went to like a historic defeat under his leadership. Um, now Johnson is in that position where he is loved by the Conservative members, but by the general public, they don't like him at all. You've got to remember when he was leader after the Partygate stuff happened, but before this Chris Pincher stuff, he was still losing by-elections in like super, super safe Conservative seats. By, by loads, losing them to the Lib Dem. None of that has changed. The public has made up its mind on Boris Johnson. So I think him coming back would actually spell, definitely gives the Conservatives an electoral loss. They might be able to poll at 20% again because their members are engaged, but that they lose the general population and they become alienated from the general sway of like the way society is going. Other problem that Boris Johnson has is that although it is claimed that he's got 100 MPs, honest boss, they all go to another school, you don't know them, but I've got 100 MPs named. Um, how does Boris Johnson form a cabinet? when his cabinet, so many people resigned last time saying that he was unfit to leave, right? That, 
that includes a lot of people to personally row back on those things and say no. The amount of people he alienated during his time in control of the Conservative Party, you've got rumours that some MPs would resign or they'd cross the floor or they'd just simply refuse to be part of a cabinet with him. So who are you going to have in your cabinet? Is it going to be Michael Fabricant and Peter Bone and James Cleverley and, and, and that's it? You, you, we talked about the lack of skills that you know, the lack of skilled people that Liz Truss had to put in her cabinet, the pool would be even smaller if you've got Boris Johnson. And if Boris Johnson gets 100 MPs and is in charge, but Rishi Sunak has got over half of MPs claiming that they want him as their leader, how does Boris Johnson get anything through Parliament? He can't. You're back to the same problem you had under Liz Truss. So that's why it's so bad for the Conservative Party. Essentially, if they stick with Boris, their members will be happy, but the party won't, and he won't be able to preside over a functioning Parliament. If Rishi is in, then the MPs will probably be behind him and he'll have more than 50% of the MPs who'll be able to get his policy through, but they'll alienate the members who'll feel that they haven't had their say and the calls for general election will get louder. And they might slip in the polls even more if those previously Conservative voters say, I've had enough of this, I'm not voting Labour, but maybe I'm going to abstain or go for reform or, or, or something like that. So whichever way the Conservatives turn, I feel at the next juncture, it is bad for them. They end up losing in some way. And whoever's next is the leader of the Conservative Party is in for a very, very tough time because I can't see how. I can see Rishi Sunak lasting the two years, but by the time that general election comes around, it's going to be a real uphill battle for them to compete with, with Labour. I, I don't think I have much more to add there. Uh, I think we've said our piece about, about potential leaders here. So that leads us to the polls, which, as we've alluded to already, have been interesting. So I think we're going to first start off with um, the general election prediction from Electoral Calculus, which uh, we've used before. Now, this is based on opinion polls up to the 14th of October, so it's about a week out of date as we record. I'm going to hit the, the main three parties here and also just mention the SNP, because I think that's important, because this, this one does tend to factor that in quite well. Um, so, Conservatives, 2019, their percentage of the votes was 44.7%. They've dropped to 24.1%, which gives them a range of seats, but their predicted seats, 48. Labour, going from 33% of the vote to 50.6%, which would lead them to a predicted 507 seats, which is, uh, in a word, a lot. Um, <laughs> Uh, Lib Dems going from 11.8% to 10.1%, but due to how boundaries and stuff work, actually that would lead to predicted 19 seats over their original 11. So actually a gain for Lib Dems, despite a slight drop in vote share. That's mostly because if Conservatives are dropping in places and competing, then those those places that are kind of, they tend to be Conservative, but can lean a bit Lib Dem. And then if some people vote Labour, Labour won't get in necessarily there and you end up with a Lib Dem. Um, and then the SNP going from 4% to 4.4%, that's of the national vote share, obviously, with in Scotland it's a higher percentage um, and that would lead to 52 seats for the SNP which is slightly more than they have now basically means there's kind of slightly con areas that may have been a bit conservative or a bit Labour kind of get, get squashed down a bit and it's not surprising if I was Scottish uh, <laughs> I saw a tweet the other day it was like I'm English and I want independence too. Um, so it's like, yeah, I can fully understand why the SNP is doing very well out of all of this as well. Um, so that's that's uh, the Electoral Calculus website. That only updates, I think, monthly or maybe bi-weekly. But yeah, it's not been updated yet since all of this happened. So that that's pretty bad polling already with a, with a majority of... Well, so so two things to take away. With, with that, that set of votes there from over a week ago, um, the SNP would be the official opposition by four seats. Um, and 507 is a ridiculous majority. Labour could do what they like. Even though we technically have more than two parties, this very much starts to fall into the kind of two-party politics, like, you know, America has Republicans and Democrats, and they go back and forth. It's kind of like, you can come, Labour can come in and just do what they like for a period of time until the public gets so annoyed at them that the vote share starts to go back the other way. So uh, it's a solid five years of doing what Labour wants, basically, um, without having to compromise with any of the smaller parties, which I think is bad for democracy. Uh, I, I, uh, as, as we've talked about before, coalitions are a good thing in general. If it goes that low, it's we're talking death rows of the Conservative Party here. Like, it, it, clearly the general public has, has swayed a lot and the Conservative Party is incredibly resilient. But you are looking at not five years out of power, you're looking at 10 years out. You're looking at a similar wipeout they had in 1997. Um, and, and this is the problem for the Conservative Party is that they are splintering as it is, that they it appears they have too many groups and factions of MPs, which means they struggle to have this identity anymore. And those that want to put forward their identity to the country, when it's instantly rejected by the market, 
then people do lose faith in you entirely. And it's it's incredible how volatile politics has become. Because classically, as a classically trained politics student, you were taught that Labour and the Conservatives always get about 30% of the votes, and then it's 40% in the middle that will sway either way, right? It appears that our politics has changed a lot now, where those numbers can shift dramatically from side to side, with Labour gaining so much at the expense of the Conservatives who seem unable to put forward a, a programme for government or a reliable leader. That's where they are struggling. Now, if they get a leader in charge, then we can expect a bump in the polls. I doubt that, you know, Boris Johnson, for all his flaws, appears to have had some support amongst Conservatives. So you'd imagine a small bump from him if he got in charge. Same with Rishi. I think just having somebody in who is seen as, as competent, if Rishi proves himself to be competent, that might help them to bump up to, what, 24, 25, maybe? But that's still not election winning numbers and it's still a huge fall from the what 44 percent you said that they had in in 2019 uh, so it is it is hard at the moment to see how the conservative party will recover now we've had um, lots of unprecedented things happen to us during the time of this podcast so never say never yeah yeah i mean we've got two years labor could definitely stuff it up but i mean if if you're keir starmer all you need to do is just keep existing at this point. If if this is how bad it gets with Liz Truss, there was a whole load of stuff where it was like, you know, she said we're going to do this, and he's like, well, actually, that's Labour's policy. You've just gone back to now, um, and you were criticising us last week, um, and stuff like that. And it, he's good at pointing that kind of stuff out because he's a lawyer, and that is the kind of thing that he just needs to keep doing. And he doesn't need to be particularly charismatic when he's up against people people actively dislike. Um, so you know. Um, I just want to quickly look at political poll of polls. Predicted 50.6% to 24.1% Labour to Conservative. Uh, with the current poll average, it's predicted Labour 54%, Conservatives 21%. Uh, Lib Dems 10% uh, and SNP 4%. So you are looking at even more gains for Labour through this crisis. Um, some of those polls are outliers. I think the highest I've seen is Labour 57%. So I said there was a poll that said, oh, there'll be like five uh, Conservatives. But that was um, uh, that poll. Uh, the, the advice from my Scottish friend is if you ever see the Outer Hebrides red, the poll is wrong for Scotland. <laughs> so that means they haven't, that means they've, they've taken the percentages and just applied them across the country, but not taken into account how Scotland's setup is. And similarly, they've probably made mistakes in Wales for the same reasons. It basically means it's an England-centric poll, poll prediction. So this is a particular poll, not the average that we've just discussed, but there's a particular poll where Labour had a 53%, Conservatives 14%, Lib Dems 11%. Green 6 and S&P 5%. Based on that prediction, which, as I say, does take into account um, Scotland properly, you end up with Labour having 530 seats, which is even more than the 507 we just discussed. The S&P on 47, which is about the same as we just discussed. Lib Dems on 38, which is a bit of a surge for the Lib Dems. Conservatives on 13 seats. It's a majority of 410 for Labour. Uh, and of course, the Green Party keep their one seat that they always have because... I think that's basically how the Green Party goes at the moment. Um, and that is, yeah, I mean, that's just absolutely wild. I don't think that is going to last, as we've discussed, uh, through to, to, to the general election. But uh, it's just, it's so strange to see stuff like that. Uh, the country is, it's almost, I, I imagine most people who listen are aware of the Jeb meme where the entirety of the US was yellow for Jeb Bush uh, when he stood as a third party <laughs> candidate. Well, there's one which is the same, and he has like these laser eyes, and some of them are the same with Keir Starmer where everything is red. Um, but this map is not very far from that um, if you ignore the SNP in Scotland, obviously. But like for, for England and Wales, very close to that. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting times. <laughs> We've been saying for the last X number of years, you, d you don't want to live in these interesting times. We keep living through them. And just the final thing to add into the show notes, I don't know if I will. Uh, Maybe, maybe this will be our main image for, for the week because it's uh, uh, freely available on the internet. But um, the graph of Liz's in, in a charge of the UK has been updated to zero. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, that weird period where... So someone was saying uh, that it's going to be an absolutely uh, brilliant quiz question in about 30 years' time. Who was uh, leader of the UK when the Queen died? Um, because it's going to be... The, the Prime Minister no one remembers because uh, they weren't around for very long. <laughs> I think that's it for this week. Is there anything else you want to add, Mark? No, other than can the news slow down a bit, please? It would be nice, <laughs> given I have to edit this episode to get it up. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, so uh, I guess our usual, uh, you know, thank you for listening, getting to the end of the episode. This is a bit of a shorter episode than our bumper episode, I say, looking at the uh, an hour and 39 minute recording time and going, that's wrong. Um, no, so this is, you know, thank you for listening all the way to the end. As always, uh, 
You can support us by finding us on Facebook as Unparliamentary Language, on Twitter and Instagram at Unpal Podcast, on Patreon.com at patreon.com forward slash TSS, where you can throw a dollar our way uh, a month and you can get access to bonus content. Normally, Rob and I chatting about our lives and stuff as we kind of preamble to the show and also sometimes hilarious clips of us misspeaking and other things that you only get on there in a special Patreon feed, uh, crossover episodes and other things, although this is the, the main podcast going out at the moment, so uh, slightly less of those, but they will be coming back, I'm sure. Um, I don't know, maybe we'll do a weird unparliamentary language Astrocast crossover, the politics of the 41st millennium, I don't know. <laughs> and uh, yes, uh, you can also find us uh, on Reddit at forward slash r forward slash unparliamentary. Uh, and I don't think there's anything else left for me to say other than it's good night from me. And it's good night from him. Bye. 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 Bye, Liz. Don't let the door hit you on your way. Hello. Larry Bye. for PM. <laughs>